the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. And over these last, well, the previous 12 weeks, we've, we've been exploring, um, really exploring what was going on in Corinth in the first letter. We've only looked at the first letter. The Corinthian church was certainly a work in progress, I think it's fair to say, as this very diverse community of men and women, rich and poor, free and enslaved, powerful and powerless, Jews and Gentiles wrestled with how to live out their faith as a community of God's people in Corinth. As they explored their lives, as Paul met with them and others met with them, they, had, they explored which values, relationships, and activities they could continue with and which they had to change in response to them becoming followers of Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus here tonight, then you've wrestled, I've wrestled. As a church community, we wrestle with exactly that same dilemma. What values, what relationships, what activities should we be involved in? So let me pray, and, and we're going to move on into this passage and just wrap it up, really. Slightly more overarching uh, tonight than the detail we've done in some sessions. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we gather here tonight to be open to the work of your Spirit. Father, meet with us, I pray. Mold us and shape us. Help us to grow more Christ-like through the words that I say from you, I pray. Lord, help each of us to be reflective on our own walk with you. Encourage us and challenge us, I pray. Amen. Paul writes to them to tell this young Corinthian church, very diverse church, how to grow deeper in faith and understanding, how to live lives which honor, which worship God. And like I've said already, I think that's why it's a really good letter for us to work our way through. And we're going to take different things, I'm sure, over these last 12, 13 weeks away from the sessions about what's pertinent to you as an individual in your own walk of faith, whether that is you're already walking with Jesus or you're asking questions about that. And also as a community, what does it look like to be followers of Christ in 21st century Exeter? So for those who are here tonight who would call themselves disciples of Jesus, this letter, I think, is a real reminder of how easily um, or how easy it is to become blind to areas in our own lives, just like the Corinthians had become blind to areas of their lives. Where is it that we live by contemporary cultural values rather than God's values? Jesus himself reminded his Jewish listeners about being self-aware from this famous well-known. When he said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? And in a sense, the Corinthian church was a little bit like that. Paul had to step in and remind them. Sometimes people actually outside of a situation have to speak in. They, they have a perspective that sometimes we ourselves miss out on. 
So 1 Corinthians reminds us that we can all become blind to that possibility. Our relationships, our activities, sometimes lead us away from true worship. And if you don't call yourself a Christian, then this letter, I think, may help you understand why those who do can sometimes look no different than their neighbors because they've become distracted by the world around them. And the Bible, and here is the example of 1 Corinthians, is very honest about why people, including Christians, fall short of God's values and his plan for his creation. So in a minute, we're going to read chapter 16. So again, if you've got a device, get that out. There are Bibles at the back if you, if you want to get hold of those. Um, we're actually, I've got all, all the texts up on the screen, so... Um, If you haven't got one, it it doesn't matter. But for some people, you might enjoy or prefer looking at the text. But before we do that, I want to ask you a question. What's the difference between a personal letter and a circular letter? Just have a think. I'm not sure because, you know... We've even finally got the Christmas tree, de- tree down and everything like that. But every year, the Judd's right, and we try and get a funky title, so it's always called Judd's Jottings. And if you've got really good eyesight, you can actually read what we wrote this year. But every year, we write a Christmas newsletter and send it off to those generally who we haven't seen for a while. So friends maybe that we knew at university and we're still in touch loosely with, or, or work situations, or when we relocate around the country, just to keep people up to, de- up to date. And of course, I don't know about you, we receive quite a lot back. And I love receiving them because I'm just nosy and I want to know what's going on in other people's lives, if I'm honest. But they all tend to be quite generic in nature, mainly. Ours generally gives the bare bones. If you can read it up on the screen, you can see we don't really give much away in the Judd household. We give enough, just, just a little, little flavor. Some we receive actually give a lot of detail. You know already your friends who send you... Now, some, of course, it's moved online a little bit. We've had more more by emails this year. But we used to have a family, six sides. We learned everything about that family. But generally, most newsletters are quite brief, quite short. They're they're snapshots. They're, They're quite generic. But just after Christmas this year, we actually received what I would call a proper newsletter. A friend of mine who I was at university with quite a few decades ago wrote after we'd sent our newsletter back. It was a follow-up to our newsletter. They had actually read our newsletter and they asked follow-up questions. I don't know if that's ever happened to you before. (laughs) It's like a test, really, isn't it? Um, And then they took the ideas and the themes from our newsletter and they they sort of flipped it on themselves and said how they're getting on and what they're up to in the same areas. This letter had been carefully and deliberately crafted. It commented on those particular circumstances. It responded to what life was currently like for us. Trying to get perhaps behind some of our more general comments. And I don't know if you know, but, but it's often thought that Paul sent out both personal letters, some of them are names, so they're pretty obviously personal, and some circular letters. Um, and perhaps the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians is a more sort of circular letter, expected to be read by multiple churches in a region. And so in some ways, they're slightly more generic rather than specific in, in some ways, the themes they take up with. 
A bit like the Judd's newsletter, to be honest. However, I think the letter to 1 Corinthians, uh, or the letter of 1 Corinthians, is far more personal. As we've explored over the weeks, we've actually been unpacking specific issues going on in that church. So it's not general advice, it's very specific advice. Part of the dialogue um, that Paul's engaged with with that church is he responds to what he's heard about the church from other people and possibly from letters he's received himself. And therefore, I think Paul ends this letter with a more extended final comment than normal than some of his other letters. A final greeting which summarizes the overarching message he has for his, this mixed-up community. A message of both warning and hope. And that's where we're going to focus this evening, just on, on that ending. So although Sat is going to come up and she's going to read the whole of chapter 16 to us, particularly listen to Paul's closing remarks and ask yourself, what are the key points Paul wants the Corinthians to take away? What is the takeaway? What does he want them to do in response to the information he's given them? Right, Sassy. So we find ourselves in chapter 16. Uh, we started this journey in September, and let's read the final verses together. Now, about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now, about our brother Apollos... I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. 
for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters there send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Brilliant, thanks. Quite a lot in, that, in the whole chapter, and we we're actually going to focus in just on the very ending of it. But you may have already noticed that there's at least two main teaching points still involved in, in 1 Corinthians 16. Paul writes now about in verses 1 and in verses 12. So there's at least a division there, perhaps. And then he goes on at the start, um, on to start his final greeting in verse 19. Before we get to his, his own handwriting in verse 21. Now Paul, like many of the first century, dictated their letters to a scribe or a secretary. We even find out the name of one scribe, uh, Tertius, in Romans 16, verse 22, where we read, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. The scribe would meet uh, with Paul a number of times, probably, to draft the letter, which may have been written on a uh, a wax um, plate to allow edits before it was finally written down um, and on a scroll and, and sent. It was also common for the letter sender to pen a couple of lines at the end of the letter in their own handwriting to authenticate that the letter was sent from them, which is, of course, what we read in verse 21. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. So tonight, we're going to examine Paul's handwriting statement, not his handwriting itself. Using, I think, I've just put it down as three things here, just to perhaps help us to to phrase it, just as we explore these three verses. A faithful life, a gracious life, and a loving life. So, verse 22, a faithful life. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians, to God's people in Corinth, as I've already said, to those who claim to be disciples of Jesus, to those who claim to have turned their backs on their former lives and been born again into the kingdom of God. And yet, throughout this letter, if you've journeyed with us over that time or you've listened to it because all of the the previous talks are online, you can can, uh, go back and, and listen to them again, He's challenged them about what they are saying and doing. Their words and deeds do not match their claim to love God. He has warned them about divisions in the church, about sexual immorality, lawsuits between believers, probably the wealthy, um, lawsuits against the poor, because the poor couldn't afford to do lawsuits for a start. Issues around marriage and celibacy. When to get married, who to get married to, can you stay married? Appropriate use of Christian freedom, how to worship God correctly, abuses on the way perhaps the Lord's Supper was fitted into a wider meal, 
misunderstandings and misusing spiritual gifts. And last week, Adrian talked about wrong understanding or teaching about the nature of the resurrection and its application to Christians. Paul tells them in this letter to get a grip, to change how they are living. And in verse 22, Paul uses the language of Deuteronomy 6 in the Old Testament to remind them the consequences if they refuse to live faithless lives. Sorry, refuse to live, of course, faithful lives. So here are the words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength great start and it goes on to say in verse 12 be careful that you do not forget the lord who brought you out of egypt out of the land of slavery fear the lord your god serve him only and take your oaths in his name do not follow other gods the gods of the peoples around you deuteronomy 6 then lays out alternative consequences for how the people choose to follow God. For those who remain faithful, God will walk, through, uh, walk with them. But for those who are faithless and turn away from God, then destruction awaits them, since they've broken their covenant promise to be his people. And in these closing comments, Paul speaks to remind the people that their choices have consequences, that their behavior will shape their future when Jesus returns to earth to judge the living and the dead. Paul wants the people to understand that God will act on their choices. Yes, God may be slow to anger and abounding in love, as God himself reveals to Moses in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. But God goes on to say, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. In this letter, Paul has warned them time and time again explain to them, challenge them, encourage them to reflect on their words and deeds. To understand that many of them, through their words and deeds, were walking away from God and not with him. For those faithfully walking with God, there's nothing to fear, of course. But for those who choose to walk away from God, then they face darkness and destruction. Paul here in verse 22 encourages the Corinthians to stop being unfaithful. Now, having been open and honest with the Corinthians about the dangers of their present life choices, Paul next, in verse 23, reminds the community that uh, their God is a God of grace. Now, I wonder if you've noticed for those who are followers of Jesus, who read Paul's letters, that Paul generally begins and ends his letters with a reminder of God's grace. His introductions and his final greetings always mention it. There's a few examples in Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, but you can work your way through all of the letters that are ascribed to, to Paul. 
And 1 Corinthians, of course, is no different. We have this book ending here. So in verse 3, we have grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end, as we've got here in verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. So while verse 22 focuses on the actions of people, those who claim to follow Jesus, verse 23 focuses on the actions of God. Paul reminds those mixed-up disciples of, of, uh, of Jesus that peace, shalom, completeness can only come through God's grace. Now, over the last few years, the teaching program here at Belmont has sought to remind us of the overarching themes, the shape, the big story of the Bible, that the whole of the Bible works together to reveal God's plan and purpose for his creation and how humans fit into that, how God invites us into a covenant relationship with him, into an agreement to follow him, serve him, and allow him to work through us so that he can restore his broken, damaged, and distorted sinful creation. Grace is shorthand for the restoring activity of God. The activity of God which keeps his plan and purpose on track. That starts by meeting humans in their failure, their failure to live as faithful followers of the creator. And if they're willing to turn back, to worship him and not idols, it will involve God healing them, rescuing them, justifying them, saving them, releasing them from the consequences of not loving him in thought, word, and deed. And God's gracious activity, of course, centers on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Having been honest with the Corinthians throughout this letter about their failures to live up to their calling to be the people of God, Paul reminds the Corinthians of the hope that they have in and through Jesus. Paul invites them to welcome the grace of God into their own lives by returning to walk with him, living faithful lives. And then finally, despite everything that's been done to him, that they've done to each other and they've done to God, Paul ends by telling the Corinthians that he loves them. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. I wonder how Paul can love them. Some of them, many of them, have actively spoken against him. They've rejected his teaching and ignored him. They've rejected his leadership and his authority. And they're living lives which ignores God's values, the values that he wants them to live by and he tries to live by himself. How can Paul say he loves them? I think for many today, the word love tends to be associated with how we feel emotionally about someone or something. In ethics, we talk about emotivism. If it feels good, if it feels right, we do it. The word is used often, love is often used to describe our emotional state. But of course, as with all emotional states, it's open to fluctuations, to change. We can talk about falling in love and falling out of love. 
as our emotions change. But this isn't how Paul generally meant, um, meant the word love when he uses it. For him, love is an act of the will, not a description of emotions. Love is a decision you made or make, a choice you took or take. It's a deliberate and controlled action. Despite all the pain and suffering the Corinthians had caused to others, to him, Paul chose to love them and not reject them. Paul chose to seek the best for them, to help them flourish and thrive, to encourage them to come back to the Father. So why did Paul choose to love them rather than detest them or hate them or reject them for their faithlessness? He chose to do it, but why? I think we need to remember back to Paul's own life, back to when he was called Saul, when he devoted his time to persecuting Christians. That time on his way, um, he was on his way to Damascus. We can read about it in Acts 9, to sort out the Christians there, to cause them trouble, to get them arrested. On the way, he had an encounter with Jesus. Despite everything he had done or wanted to do to God's followers, Paul didn't receive punishment on that road, but love. Paul learned that we can all receive grace in our lives rather than punishment because God is love. In 1 John chapter 4, I think, reflects and helps shape Paul's attitude to the Corinthian community. John writes, This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Paul chooses to love the Corinthians because he knows that God loves the Corinthians with the same love that God loved him on that road to Damascus, I think. So there we have three verses in Paul's own handwriting. So as I draw to a close, let me just summarize quickly where my reflection this evening's gone. Paul is telling the Corinthian church, I think, in these last three lines as a summary of everything else in the 16 chapters. Although you deserve to face the penalty or consequences of your faithless actions in Corinth, where you are living like pagans and not as Christians, if you respond to God's love, God's love revealed through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, admit that you have got things wrong and set out to walk with God again, then God will remove the consequences of your words and deeds. God will act graciously and restore you to the covenant family. And he does this not because you deserve it, that he has to do it, but because he's chosen to love his creation, because God's nature of love guides his behavior. One Corinthians 16. Verses 22 to 24. Well, I wonder if you've noticed, I haven't actually mentioned we are generous. 
Now, often if I don't mention what's found on the term card or the focus, it's normally because I've just ignored it and I've taken my talk in. But I actually think tonight that we are generous, I think, is something we need to take away with from this passage. Why? Because Paul reminds us, as well as the Corinthian church, that they worship a generous God. A God who stays faithful to his people. He stays faithful to his covenant promises, even when his people do not. A God who faithfully loves when he's not loved in return. A God who provides hope and a future for those who respond to his loving call to come home. Talking about God's generosity is simply, I think, another way of talking about God's love and grace for his creation. So to revisit and maybe reappropriate the words from 1 John, I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, but I've done it. Dear friends, since God has been so generous to us, we ought to be generous to one another. God's people can be a faithful light in the darkness by uh, talking of the generosity that we've received from God and by living generous lives as acts of worship and testifying to our generous God. A major underlying problem in Corinth was that the people were leading self-centered lives rather than generous lives, other-focused lives. 